If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, we want to read verses 1 through 11. Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 11. Follow along in your copy of Scripture as I read. Peter writes, There were also false prophets among the people, and that is, he's referring back to the Old Testament prophets and through that Old Testament history. There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Let's have a brief word of prayer. So, our Father, I pray that from this passage we would both be warned and encouraged and find assurance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, and there has been throughout human history, no shortage of false teachers, right? Some have flagrantly contradicted God's Word. So this is what the Bible says, but no, forget that this is what is true. Some hold to writings that are in addition to God's Word. So Mormonism, for example, would say, yeah, we, we believe the Bible, but we also hold to the Book of Mormon and all these other things. Some have distorted God's Word to suit their own ideas and distorted it to such an extent that you wouldn't even recognize it. The Jehovah's Witnesses Bible is supposed to be a translation, the New World translation of the Scriptures, but all kinds of distortions in that to suit the whim of the translators. And many of those false teachers have started movements, even like full-blown religions or cults, that compete with Orthodox Christianity. And they thrive, even prosper, seem to be doing very well. So when you see that, and then you realize that the average church in America, including Orthodox Bible-believing churches, are like ours, that is, membership under 100 and sometimes 
just struggling to meet a basic budget, it might lead the casual observer to wonder if they, the false teachers, are going to get away with it. If verse 3 is really so, that the judgment has not been idle and their destruction is imminent, is it? What judgment? What, what judgment? Destruction is imminent? Well, they seem to be untouchable. So with that view before us, what we see in our own world and in our own time, it's helpful to have the historical perspective that Peter gives us in verses 4 through 10. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's only one period in that whole section that we read. You have the period at the end of verse 3, and then to have a new sentence begin in verse 4, and that sentence doesn't stop until the middle of verse 10. It's a very lengthy sentence, but that one long sentence gives us a historical perspective. And with that historical perspective, you can be assured of both doom and deliverance. So let's look at the past in this historical perspective. In the past, God in justice, God in His justice, has doomed the unjust. So let's take note of the identity of the victims of God's just judgment that Peter brings up here. So in verse 4, he speaks of angels who faced God's just judgment. In verse 5, he refers to the ancient world, that would be the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world. And in verse 6, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. So these are the three examples that he pulls out of history to show us that God, in His just judgment, dooms the unjust. And so let's remind ourselves and clarify the occasion for that just judgment. Let's think about these angels. First of all, verse 4 says, He did not spare the angels who sinned. Well, what angels are those? It can't be all of the fallen angels, those who you know, become you know, demonic influences in this world, because not all of the fallen angels are delivered into chains of darkness. So what angels is he talking about? Well, let's look at the sister passage of Second Peter and look in the book of Jude. You go over a few pages in your Bible to Jude, and verse 6, and Jude tells us that these are angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. They didn't keep the, their proper domain, they left their own abode. Now, there are different opinions about what that means and who those angels are, but my interpretation and understanding of that passage is that these angels that the Lord cast down to hell and delivered into chains of darkness are the uh, sons of God that are referred to in Genesis chapter 6. So let's go back to Genesis, and you're going to want to probably keep a bookmark in uh, Genesis because we're going to look at several different passages here. But in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 2 through 4, we read about these sons of God, and we looked, at, we looked at this passage as well when we were in our study in 1 Peter, 
but he says in verse 2, Genesis 6, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We'll look at that verse um, some more in a little while. But what what I believe this is referring to is the idea that the possibility, I think the likelihood, that these sons of God are actually angelic beings. You know, we know from other passages in uh, Genesis, for example, that angels can take on human form. They can look like just any other man, and, and you would not know that they're an angel from the way they appear. So we know that that's the case, and uh, there's also the possibility that these sons of God uh, inhabited men to, uh, to procreate with women. But in doing this, they sinned grievously, these angels, by leaving their proper domain, the domain of the spirit world, to come into the physical world, the material world, for nefarious purposes, for selfish purposes. They sinned grievously. Well, again, in verse 5 in Second Peter chapter 2, we are referred to the ancient world this world that sinned incessantly. Again, Genesis chapter 6, this gives us some background to, uh, to, to what's going on in that ancient world that had to suffer God's judgment. In verses 5 through 7, it says, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, incessantly." This world is sinning. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Their sin was so grievous and incessant that you have this description of God's response to what he sees in the... the, uh, widespread wretchedness of the human race. So you have the angels that sinned grievously. You have the ancient world that sinned incessantly. And then uh, in our text in Second Peter, in verse 6, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah sinned flagrantly. Sinned flagrantly. So the last part of verse 7 uh, in Second Peter chapter 2 tells us, that their conduct was filthy, and they were wicked. A lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The last part of verse 8 says that Lot tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Again, we can turn to the book of Jude. Uh, Flip over to Jude and look at verse 7, also talking about this Uh, these cities, these twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar matter to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, 
are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, those are the New Testament references to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go back to Genesis and see the account, Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. Genesis 13 is the account of uh, Abraham and Lot trying to figure out where they're going to go because they each had so much livestock that they needed to go their separate ways. And Lot, we read in verse, uh, verse 11, chose for himself all the plain of, of Jordan, and he journeyed east. Verse 12 says, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But look at verse 13 and what it tells us about Sodom. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful before the Lord. Turn over a few pages to Genesis 18 and verse 20. Verse, 18, verse 20 of Genesis 18 says, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, He's going to take action. So the Lord's assessment is that their sin is very grave. And then in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, you see a vivid example of, of one time uh, one action that probably repeated itself over and over and over again. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19 says, Now before they lay down, that is, um, uh, before the angels who visited Lot and laid down for the night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That is, we may know them carnally in a sexual way. Their sin was very flagrant and exceedingly wicked. I want us to look at one other passage that refers to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. The Lord is uh, lamenting the behavior of His own people, and He says in verse 48, As I live, says the Lord, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. He says, look, verse 49, This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So there's an arrogance, there's a pride, there is a self-sufficiency on the part of these people, and there is, a, there is a hostility or an indifference toward those who were poor and needy. Then verse 50, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Sodom and Gomorrah sinned flagrantly before the Lord. So those are the occasions for the Lord's judgment in the past. Angels sinned grievously. The world sinned incessantly. Sodom and Gomorrah sinned flagrantly. And you notice the realms of the judgment that have been executed. There is judgment upon the spiritual realm as angels who sinned grievously were judged. There is the world as a whole, the whole earth in that global flood 
sinned incessantly and God brought judgment upon it. And, the, and Sodom and Gomorrah, a couple of cities, just a, a, a small, relatively speaking, area on the planet is judged for sinning flagrantly. Now, that's the occasion for the, God's just judgment. But look, don't miss the apparent prosperity and success of those who were judged. What do I mean? Well, let's, let's look at those angels again, back in Genesis chapter 6. These angels, these sons of God, they were able to do what they wanted. They, just, they were just able to do whatever they wanted. You see this. It says, "...the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose." Now, we don't have any idea what that looked like. I, well, I shouldn't say that. We may have some idea what that looked like. If you have been associated in any way with a, an arrogant, um, abusive, controlling person, could be a man or a woman, that person can behave however he or she wants to behave, and people just kowtow to them because they seem to be so powerful, so strong. And you don't, have, you don't feel like you have any choice but to go along. This is the success of these sons of God, these angels. They were able to do whatever they wanted. The last part of verse 4, tell, or in the middle of verse 4, tells us that they were able to create families and a life on earth. The sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Again, we can't really grasp this if we're talking about angels that have taken on human form, or either that or controlled human beings. They were able to create families and a life on earth. You would look at them and you would say, there's a measure of prosperity, there's a measure of success. Well, furthermore, the last part of verse 4 tells us that they developed a superior race. Look at verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So those offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men were, look at how they're described in this verse. There were giants, there were giants. That word, maybe you've heard this Hebrew word, Nephilim. It means mighty ones. They were giants, they were huge. He also says, uses the phrase, uh, they were, in the end of the verse, they were mighty men. And here the word means strong, powerful warriors. So they were mighty in terms of the way people viewed them. They were actually mighty in their ability to, to uh, engage in war and fighting. And then they were also called, at the end of verse 4, men of renown. They had a reputation, a great reputation. Everybody knew them. If you were living in that day that this was going on, you would see these sons of God as they, as they populated their families and they procreated and, and developed these, this uh, superior race. And you would, you would conclude these are very prosperous, successful individuals. Well, think about the ancient world as well. In the ancient world, uh, verse 5 here in Genesis chapter 6, 
tells us that the ancient world succeeded in, in the widespread proliferation of sin. The Lord saw the wickedness of man it was great in the earth. Widespread proliferation. Verses 11 and 12 says, "...the earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way uh, on the earth." Fully uh, succeeded in widespread proliferation of sin. And the last part of verse 5 tells us that this ancient world was also very successful and prosperous in being engulfed in sinful thoughts and intentions with no apparent consequences. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the thing about that ancient world and all of its uh, evil, its widespread proliferation of sin is it it carried on unhindered in spite of God's threat. What do I mean? The threat is issued in verse 13. God said to Noah, The end of flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There's the threat. But how long was it before the threat was realized? Verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, if he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 120 years. Is this just going on and on, day after day, year after year? Nothing's happening to these people. They're doing what they want to do. They're living the way they want to live. They're they're manufacturing these thoughts and intentions in their heart, and they're carrying them out in in their behavior, and they're getting away with it for 120 years. And then there's Sodom and Gomorrah. Also seems to be quite successful and prosperous. Look at chapter 13 of Genesis and verse 10. Imagine this place. Uh, Verse 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now look at this. Look at this description. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Like the garden of the Lord. What is the garden of the Lord? The garden of Eden, right? So if, if you lived in the day, you saw, the guard, you saw Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah as a lush, prosperous, desirable paradise. Like, who wouldn't want to live there? Maybe like some of the pictures you see in these uh, southern South Pacific islands that are just so, they look so good, they look so beautiful. It's all typhoon hits, but you know, they look so, so plush, and who wouldn't want to live there? And yet, this lush, prosperous, desirable paradise was, was existing in its ongoing uh, wretchedness day after day after day. They also, the Sodomites, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, seemed to be a very successful people because, again, they could demand what they wanted and seems like they almost always got away with it. So in chapter 19, verse 5, 
when they come to Lot and they say, where are these men who have come into you? Give them to us so that we can do with them what we want. And verse 9, they said, uh, they said, stand back, the men of Sodom. They said to Lot, stand back. Then they said, this one, speaking of Lot, came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. It's like, who's going to stop them? Who's going to stop them? It says, so they pressed hard against the, lot, the man Lot and came near to break down the door. This, I would suggest, was not an, an, an un, uncommon event, but more likely an ongoing event that happened frequently as these men of Sodom seemed to get whatever they wanted. And they also had a long-standing practice of evil. Back in 2 Peter 2, verse 8 says that Lot tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Day to day with no end in sight. So this is the behavior that rightly came upon, this is the behavior, the seeming prosperity and success of these angels and the ancient world and Sodom and Gomorrah that seems like maybe they're not going to be judged at all. Nevertheless, the doom fell. The doom fell. The end of verse 3 in our text, uh, chapter 2, 2 Peter, says that for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. He's referring to the false prophets and what's going to come upon them. But the point is that God has decreed a long time ago what the judgment is to fall upon such wickedness. God evaluated and God decided how He would act. So, for example, at the end of verse 3, it doesn't slumber. The, the destruction doesn't slumber. And the beginning of verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels, it didn't slumber. The judgment came. The judgment fell. And when that judgment came, it was destructive. It was destructive as God executed His judgment. The angels, verse 4 says, were not spared. They were cast into the lowest region of hell. The word that's translated hell here is the Greek word Tartarus. Peter probably borrowed this term from Greek mythology, but it was a term that everybody understood. It was the lowest region of the underworld. And there, these are bound in darkness and sentenced to eternal condemnation. Delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved, to be guarded for judgment. And when is that judgment to come? Uh, you know Revelation 20, 14, right? Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. It will burn forever and ever. So this judgment from God was determined by Him. It was destructive, and in verse 5, the ancient world wasn't spared either. As you know the story, the entire world was fully engulfed in a cataclysmic flood. 
And in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned in the judgment that God brought upon these cities, turning them into ashes, condemning them to destruction. This judgment of the past was also decisive. It was inescapable. None of the erring angels escaped. None of the human race escaped the global flood, save eight recipients of grace. None in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah escaped, save three recipients of grace. It was decisive, and it was deserved. It was deserved. God, in justice, has doomed the unjust in the past. In the past. But look, God, in the past, in grace, has delivered His own. This also comes out in in this historical perspective. In the past, God, in grace, has delivered His own. He graciously delivered Noah and his family, verse 5 tells us. I wanted you to see, uh, you still have a bookmark in Genesis chapter 6. I want you to notice verse 8 of Genesis 6. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. You don't earn grace. He found grace in the, in the Lord's sight, which means as God looks on the planet and he sees all of the corruption in the world and he's going to bring cataclysmic destructive judgment that's going to wipe out the whole human race, he says, I want to spare the human race. Whom shall I, whom shall I save? Whom shall I spare? And he looked down and saw Noah and his family. And he said, I will spare them. They found grace. And as a recipient of God's grace, get this, as a recipient of God's grace, Noah received, here in Genesis chapter 6, Noah received God's word of warning in, chapter, in verse 13. God comes to him and says, I'm going to destroy the earth. He received, furthermore, God's gift of salvation in verses 17 and 18. Um, the Lord says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is grace, where he receives the gift of salvation. And in verse 22, Noah, as a recipient of God's grace, obeyed what God told him to do. It says, thus, Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so did he, in the building of the ark, the selection of the animals, and so forth. Verse 9 tells us that he walked with God. As a recipient of grace, Noah walked with God. He was a just man, perfect or complete in his generations. Noah walked with God. And as a recipient of grace, Noah also proclaimed God's word. 
Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. And in chapter 7, verse 1, and we work through the story of, of Noah on the ark, he experienced God's gracious deliverance. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. For 120 years, Noah has been responding to the grace shown to him by walking with God. And now, when the flood is about to come upon the earth, he is delivered. Verse 16, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord saw to it that he would be delivered. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided, and Noah eventually came out of the ark and uh, continued on with the human race, refilling the earth. Verse 18 says, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. God graciously delivered Noah and his family. And then, again, we're looking at the past. In verses 7 and 8, notice how God graciously delivered Lot and his daughters. Uh, turn to Genesis 13 for your, where your bookmark should go in the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 13, we notice that, and we're reminded that, Lot made some perilous, unwise choices, verses 10 and following. When he was given the option of where do you want to go, this way or this way, he chose to go towards Sodom because of the way it looked, because of the appearance of things. It was a paradise, a seeming paradise, and he made that choice and off he went in verses 10 to 13. And, and he remained in that place even though his righteous soul was vexed day after day by all the iniquity that he saw going on all around him. And, and turn to 19, chapter 19, and I want you to notice that this remaining in such an environment, again, he's, he's made some unwise, perilous choices and choosing to go to Sodom and then remaining in Sodom. And he, re he remained in this spiritually harmful environment, and it had, an impact, it had an effect on him. Yes, he was aggravated. Yes, he was frustrated. Yes, he was grieved by all the wickedness that he saw all around him, but it nevertheless affected his thinking. Look at verse 8 of chapter 19. When he's to be delivered, he says, See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man, Please let me bring them out to you. What? This is where these men of Sodom come to his house and they want the, they want the men that are visiting him. And, and Lot says, oh, no, 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 you, you don't do that to these men. They're my guests. But I have, I have a couple of daughters. You can have my daughters. Are you kidding me? What kind of thinking is that? What kind of thinking has become so distorted that he's going to offer his daughters for these pervs to do whatever they want to do to them. His, his thinking has become affected. It also, it also impacted his wife, no doubt about that. 
and they were being led away from the city, what did she do? She turned around and looked and became a pillar of salt. Why did she turn around and look? She longed for what she was leaving behind. And in chapter 19, verses 31 and 32, remaining in that spiritually harmful environment certainly corrupted his daughters. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is an old man, and there's no man on earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. A path of incest, a choice of incest. Where did they get such ideas as that? No doubt by the environment in which they lived. And yet, yet, Lot, in spite of those unwise choices, Lot maintained a character of distinction. You see that in verse 9 here in chapter 19. As the men are, uh, they're angry with Lot now, and they tell him to stand back, and they say, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we'll deal worse with them, with them, with him than with them. He keeps acting as a judge telling them that what they're doing is wrong. And this is what Peter is referring to when he speaks of Lot's right, Lot being a righteous man. He speaks of righteous Lot. He speaks of his righteous soul. There's a sense in which that is relative. What I mean by that is in comparison to everyone else around him, he, didn't, he did not himself engage in any of that. It bothered him to no end. Nevertheless, So Peter describes him as a righteous man. And this one, who made such unwise choices, living on ongoing life in this place, to his own harm and to the harm of his family, he nevertheless experienced God's grace. Look back at our text. I want to show you a distinction between uh, between Noah and Lot. Uh, Verse... 7 tells us that God delivered righteous Lot. In verse 5, it says that He saved Noah. Saved Noah, but delivered Lot. Should there be a distinction made here? Because the word delivered means to draw to oneself, to rescue. And when you look at these two men and how God in His grace dealt with them, Noah, look, look at this distinction. Noah was told to build the ark, to enter the ark, and he simply obeyed. He entered and was saved. Lot, on the other hand, was told to leave, but he lingered. He had to be dragged out of Sodom to be rescued, and yet he was. Both men experienced God's gracious rescue. So in the past, God has executed judgment on the unjust, and God has delivered those whom He chose to deliver. And here's what Peter's point is in all of this. It comes down to verses 9 and 10, that in the future, God will do what He knows how to do. 
He will graciously deliver the godly, as he says in verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He knows how to do this. God knows how to do this. He showed it with Noah. He showed it with Lot. God will do what he knows how to do, graciously delivering the godly. Now, here's the thing. There are things to have to be delivered from. You who are godly, nevertheless, deal with temptations. And this is not talking about solicitations to sin specifically, but any attack by the wicked one or his minions, any effort to destroy you with the intention of destroying you in some way, God knows how to deliver the godly from their experience of those trials. We read, uh, we studied uh, months ago the whole letter of 1 Peter, which is summarized with the theme, truth for troubled times, truth for pilgrims and sojourners who are going through this world, experiencing all the trials and the tribulations, sometimes from just living in a fallen world, sometimes from the persecution that comes from those who hate you. Nevertheless, God graciously knows how to deliver the godly, and He shall. The Lord knows how to rescue you. He knows how to rescue you. Remember 1 Peter 5, verse 10? He says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, settle you. God knows how to rescue you. And remember what Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. God knows how to rescue you. He knows how to rescue you. That rescue may be dramatic or subtle. He may drag you out or lead you out, but He knows how to rescue you. It may be swift or it may be gradual. It may be soon or it may come later. It may be experienced in this life, but certainly in the next. Whatever the case, it will come. God knows how to rescue you, and He will graciously deliver the godly. But the rest of verse 9 and on into verse 10 says also that God knows how to justly doom the unjust. He knows how to do this. And that which is coming upon the unjust is inescapable. Verse 9 says he knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment. To reserve them. That word means to guard, to watch over. He knows how to watch over, to guard them, to make sure that on the judgment, the, the day of judgment, the time of judgment, they will arrive at that appointed place, at that appointed time. And it is determined to take place. They are reserved under punishment. You get an idea of what this 
means or what this is like. It's like it's like the it's like the the murderer who has been convicted of capital murder and has been sentenced to execution. A death sentence. Well, if you've you, you've been around long enough to know, you know that a guy can hear that sentence read in the courtroom today, and it may be ten years before he goes into the chamber where his life will end. But those 10 years, he is, he is reserved unto judgment. His day is coming. And for this, the just, God's just dooming of the unjust, it is inevitable. It is the day of judgment. That day will come. That day will come. It's just. You know, you hear this uh, and you, you know, you, we chafe under it. We, we don't like the idea uh, in, in our modern world of the thought of God executing judgment. We don't like this, but it is just. It is just for Him to do so. It is just because of the character, the spiritual character of those upon whom this judgment will come. And what is that spiritual character? Verse 9 they are unjust. What does that mean? That word could also be translated unrighteous. Unrighteous. Who is unrighteous? Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Anyone outside of Christ is unjust, is unrighteous. But contrast that now, listen, contrast that with 1 Corinthians 1.30, where Paul says to you who are in Christ, he says, but of Him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who, Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Listen, you and I, we don't have any claim to righteousness in and of ourselves. If you are righteous, it is right, you are righteous only because of Christ. He is your righteousness. And if you are in Him, you are safe from any just judgment that has been taken by Christ. So upon whom is this coming? Those who are simply outside of Christ. The point that Peter is making here is that the unjust or the unrighteous is anyone who has not come to repentant faith in, to Jesus Christ, wholly, completely depending upon Him for salvation, for eternal life, for rescue. Refusing Him is to be unjust. They live out that injustice, that unrighteousness in different ways. Peter in verse 10 says of those, especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness, and they despise authority. Their behavior is frequently anything but righteous. Upon the unjust will this just judgment come. All right, so here's this very, very long sentence. It's a very long sentence. It has a threefold purpose, all right? Purpose number one is to give you, God's people, the assurance that God is indeed in control of dealing with every individual as He sees fit, and He will do so. He's in control of it, and He will do so. 
Secondly, the purpose of this long sentence is to encourage you who are in Christ Jesus that God knows how to and will deliver you. And the third purpose is to warn anyone listening today who is still unjust, unrighteous, disinterested in Christ. The outcome for you on Judgment Day is set unless you repent and turn to Christ while you may. Let me urge you to do so. Father in heaven, this is a sobering passage when we think about the judgment, but it is a delightful passage when we think about the rescue, the deliverance. We thank you and praise you for who you are. Thank you for your power and control. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your justice. Bless these thoughts to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.